seated. And we're going to invite our kids to stay in with us today because it's the last Sunday of the month. Well, it's always a joy to welcome you to Freedom Church and to welcome in those who are joining us uh, either live or in an archive version a little later in the week who are joining us online. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing here uh, in Freedom Church. If you've been out for the past couple of weeks, I'll tell you that we have started into a series that I think is just critically important for us. It is about the Holy Spirit and us experiencing the release of the Spirit in our lives. And over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've looked at and talked about how the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, how this was just such the huge final piece in the, the coming of God's kingdom in history. I say the final piece. Obviously, there's one major piece left. But, but up to now, it was the last big significant piece because God has come back to earth and he's come in such a powerful way that every single person who's placed their faith in Jesus now possesses all that Jesus possessed. Everybody who's a follower of Christ now has the power, the insight, the connection that Jesus had. And we, we looked back at how on the, the day of Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit came on him, that was the defining moment for Jesus, that he walked out in power. And what we've been seeking to unpack now in this series is, okay, so how do we get in on experiencing this thing that we know in our heads, in theory, is true, but we don't seem to be doing a very great job of, of walking that out, right? I mean, that, that is the, the challenge, isn't it? That we, we know that we possess all of this, and yet living it out has been a bit of a different matter for many of us. And so what I'm going to be sharing with you today is a message that's, that's very personal. I'm going to be just communicating primarily four different truths today about the release of the Spirit in our lives. And, and I'll just tell you that in my own experience... Uh, at a very early age, I, I mean, you know, I've told you before, if you've been here and know me, you know, I've been in church all of my life. I started going to church nine months before I was born, and it's just always been a part of life. And one of the cool things that God has done in my life, and, and part of it is because of the family of uh, the biological family, but also the faith family that I came up with, is God sowed into me really early on a, a deep hunger for him. And to really know what intimacy with God is like. I mean, it's one thing to just grow up in church and to always go to church. But it's another thing to have a real hunger in your heart for more than just going to church. And a lot of you can identify with that, can't you? That you know what it's like to be in church and to be grateful for what you experience in church. But many of you probably right now could say, I, I get that. I, I'm grateful for what I get in church, but I want more than that. I want a lot more than that. God began to really salt my soul and make me thirsty and hungry for more than just the church experience really early on. Some of that came as a result of, of watching parents whose faith was very real and who had a very personal and intimate relationship with God. Some of it came from seeing an older brother who really lived that out well. Some of that just came purely just by the sovereign work of God through His Spirit, stirring up in me a hunger for something more. Now, I grew up in the Baptist church. There's some good and some bad that goes with that, but a lot more good than bad. And um, growing up in the Baptist church, there were some things that we were pointed to that were really important, uh, some things that were really helpful along the way. You know, growing up in the Baptist church, there were two or three things that you could count on hearing, that, that you could... Be assured that in the Baptist church, you were going to hear the gospel message and the call to be saved. You better get born again. Well, that's a good call because we all need to be born again. 
And so I responded to that as a child and got the real thing. If I didn't get it the first time, trust me, I went back enough times to make sure that I got it. But, but I did as a child. I got saved. But beyond the message of salvation, there was another message that I got in the Baptist church. There was another good message. And it was, now you saved folks, you better surrender to Jesus. Now I know that might sound a little confusing because it's like, well, to get saved, don't you have to surrender to Jesus? Yes, but you know the deal. When you come to Christ, there is this thing of needing again and again to surrender everything to Him. And so within the Baptist tradition... There was, appropriately so, a really a strong call again and again to give your all to Jesus, to fully surrender to Him. And man, I, I did that over and over because I wanted more than what I was getting. And along the way, there was at least one other message that we consistently got. And that was, you need to read your Bible. You need to have a quiet time. You need personal, intimate time with God. That's another really good message. That's another important truth. And so I can tell you, if you want to know my spiritual experience through the first two or three decades of my life, it probably revolved around those three things more than anything else. I got saved and I got dunked. And those were good things. Those were biblical things. I got born again and I revisited that issue again and again in my life. I tried the best I knew how over and over to just surrender everything that I had to Jesus. You know, one of the ways that that manifested itself in my life when I was growing up in Salem Baptist Church in Brundage, Alabama was there were many services where at the end of the service, if you didn't grow up in the Baptist tradition, maybe you can't fully appreciate this, but enough of you did, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You get to the end of the message and you knew you were going to turn to hymn number 247, just as I am, right? That or I surrender all or, you know, there, there were just, and man, the one that ripped my heart out is the Savior is waiting. Woo, man, that would get me to the altar. You know, we, we were going to sing the traditional invitation hymn. And Brother A. Ray Foreman was going to, our pastor was going to be right there at the front, ready to take the hand of the next man or woman, boy or girl, ready to surrender to Jesus. And I can't tell you how many times I came forward because today's the day I'm really ready to surrender to Jesus. Now, the ironic thing looking back on it is... You know, you would think when somebody's walking the aisle again and again, it's like, man, you must really have a lot of junk in your life. You must be a bad guy if you have to walk the aisle that much. It wasn't that I was into that much bad stuff. I truly had a heart that wanted desperately to say yes to whatever Jesus had and that wanted more. And at home, I was doing the other piece. I, man, I, I was spending time in the Word, and I was spending time in prayer, and I was doing that day after day and year after year. But can I just be real honest with you and tell you that in all of that, I felt like I was missing a lot. That's because I was. And I felt great frustration that came out of that. Now, what I'm about to share may seem a, a bit confusing, but having gotten saved as a child and having spent my childhood and, and adolescent and early adult years doing these things always in church over and over really seeking to make sure that I've yielded everything to Christ and pursuing him in the word and in prayer and yet can I tell you, tell you the other thing that accompanied many of those years most of my teenage years were accompanied by an, a really overwhelming sense of doubt and fear well that seems crazy doesn't it how can somebody who's hungry for God and who's in church and in the Word and seeking after God also struggle with tremendous doubt and fear at the same time that you're pursuing Jesus and surrendering to Him? I'll tell you exactly how. 
you don't find what you're looking for. You don't get what you expected. And so in the middle of pursuing him and not getting what you thought you were going to get at the time that you expected it, in the back of your mind, questions begin to pop up. What if it's not real? I mean, what if this thing that I keep hearing other people talk about, that I keep pursuing, this thing of, of intimacy with God and hearing God speak in your life and just living so close to Him and walking in the power and the fullness that He has for us, and I don't see that in my life. And it's not because I'm living like some pagan. I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not pretending that I was per- perfect. I was far from it. But I, I wasn't, a, just in terms of human standards, I wasn't a, a terrible person. And I'm seeking after Christ, and I'm just not getting back what I thought I was going to get back in that. And so in the middle of all this, it's like, oh my goodness, what if I've been wrong? What if God isn't there? Or if He is, what if He's not the God that I was told that He was? Or or maybe it's my faith. Maybe there's just something screwed up about me and I'm not doing this right. Maybe I just need to try again. Maybe I need to start over. And in all of this, there's just this back and forth between Jesus. I do believe in you and I want to live for you. And even though I've tried to surrender everything to you, I don't really especially see you or hear you or oftentimes feel you near me. What am I supposed to do with that? What have I gotten wrong in that? Some of you can identify with what I'm talking about. It's a really painful place to be. Now, I will tell you that in my experience, the doubts and the fears essentially got wiped away during my later teen years and as I moved into adulthood. And it wasn't in a moment of time, and it didn't come as a result of a worship service, and it definitely didn't come because I walked the aisle and shook the pastor's hand and rededicated my life for the 37th time. It actually came gradually over a season of just recognizing that God really was at work. Seeing Him work around me and in me, in countless different ways that nothing else would explain other than the hand and the presence of a good and personal God. And over time, not just in a moment of time, over time, the doubts and the, the fears were erased. But I'll tell you what wasn't erased. was the deep hunger that I still had for this thing of being intimate with God, hearing from God, walking in this fullness, in this deep connection, and seeing His power on my life, and I didn't see that. And I didn't know what to do with that. Well, I'll tell you that having grown up in church, and just in the the circles that I operated in, I I not only was exposed to the Baptist church growing up, but during my teenage years, I had a very important opportunity to go and be involved in a ministry not far from where I lived, about 20 minutes away. It was called the Vineyard. It was not, wasn't a part of the Vineyard Movement, but it was, um, in some ways, was similar to the Vineyard Movement. And it was, uh, it was a place that was different. It was a Christian youth camp. And uh, the ministry out of that, it wasn't just a youth camp, but uh, as a teenager, I first got exposed to that when I was 14. My brother, who was five years older than me, and I thought the, the sun rose and set on him because he lived his faith well, and he was just a good guy, and he was my best friend. And I, I saw him go there as a counselor. And God just do some really profound stuff in his life over a couple of years. And I just got to go there as a camper when I was 14 and 15 years old and got some little doses of God doing something that went beyond what I'd ever seen in the Baptist church where I grew up. And 
man, that just really captured my heart. And then I started going back at age 16, summer after summer, spending entire summers involved in what was happening there. And they weren't afraid of the Holy Spirit there. It wasn't crazy, but it was open to teaching and experiencing and helping people to experience more than what I'd ever been around in church. And so the long and short of it is... In what I experienced growing up, and even as a young adult then, in church, in camp, in ministry, the different environments that I'd been in, I was exposed to two different versions of how you get from sort of the nominal Christian experience to this place of fullness and power and intimacy. Now, I already explained to you the Baptist version of that. If you want to get there, it's all about getting saved Getting consecrated, fully surrendered, and having a quiet time every day. Okay, well, I did that. And it didn't seem to bring about the effect that I was hoping for. Got exposed to another version of this, and it comes from the charismatic camp. I did not grow up in the charismatic camp, but I had plenty of friends who did. And as I got older, got experienced much more in that. And not to trivialize what's communicated there. But, but to just paint with a broad brush, and you know this if you've grown up with that kind of background, that a lot of what's communicated there is a message that's pointed to the same end, but by a different means. You want to move beyond the nominal Christian experience? Here's the key to that. You need to get the second blessing. You need to get the second baptism. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we've got it for you, Right? Some of you are going, I didn't grow up in that, but some of you did. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's interesting because both both of them are in the evangelical tradition, just very different camps in that tradition. And both of them involve a powerful call to the altar. Let's say this is the Baptist aisle and this is the charismatic aisle. In the Baptist aisle, we're saying, come to the altar and surrender your all to Jesus. Man, I did that more times than I could count. Now, down the charismatic aisle, we're inviting you over here to come down the aisle to Jesus. But this is not so much about what you bring down the aisle as it is what we've got to give you when you get here. We're going to lay our hands on you, and we're going to give you a second dose of the Holy Ghost. And when you get it, you're going to know that you got it. You may fall out. Hopefully you will. That'll give even a bigger buzz if you do. And when you're raised up, you're going to be able to speak in tongues. And you are just going to, you are going to be at a new level. You're going to arrive at a new plane in your spiritual experience. And lots of people love to testify as to how they did that. But here's a peculiar thing that I observed about that. If you watch their lives, it just didn't pan out. All this talk about I was here. And then I went forward and somebody laid hands on me and I spoke in tongues and I had an ecstatic experience. And woo! it was glory after that. But you watch them and how they live their lives. And it was not a, a rapid elevator ride from here to here spiritually and suddenly they just lived on a new plane spiritually. In my experience, my observation, it was bogus. And I will just tell you from a doctrinal standpoint, I know it's bogus. 
You don't instantly get from here to here because you walk the aisle in a Baptist church and you surrendered all and you don't suddenly get from here to here in a charismatic church because you walk the aisle and the spiritual giant in the room laid their hands on you and you suddenly fell out and you spoke in tongues. Neither of those experiences will get you on an ongoing basis to the place that we want to get to. Would you agree with that? Okay, we may need to think about that a little bit. (laughs) That was pretty weak. And that's okay. You may not agree with that just yet. I'm just telling you, it won't. Spiritual maturity doesn't happen in a microwave, and it doesn't happen at an altar in a moment of time. What I want to share with you today is what I have come to learn over decades of living out this thing called the Christian life. That God does have a plan for getting us from a place of the nominal Christian experience to a place where we experience more and more of real intimacy with Him. And where we hear His voice. And where we walk in the power and the fullness of what He has for us. And quite honestly, it doesn't happen in a moment of time because we hit the altar to surrender all or to get hands laid on us. There is a different lengthier process and that's what we want to talk about today how many of you long for what i'm talking about how many of you can say i genuinely have a hunger for that and it's okay it really is okay if right now if you're really honest if you say i don't know maybe not so much because if we're honest, I mean, there are people who are watching, listening online, people in the room, that it's like your experience in response to that may be, I mean, it sounds pretty good, but quite honestly, it's not something that's on my mind a lot. I mean, if you were asking me to pick a side, sure, I'll take the side of fullness over the side of being a nominal Christian. But, you know, if I'm honest, I hadn't particularly pursued either one. And that's okay if that's where you are. But I will just promise you this, God's desire is for you to experience His intimacy, His power, His fullness, whether or not it's something that you've really been chasing after. And part of what you'll discover today, I think, and I hope, is that God has been working toward moving you toward that, even if you didn't know it. Four things I want to share with you today, and the first one is what I've already talked about, and it is this, that consecration or surrender is only the first step toward operating and the power of the Spirit. When we say consecration, I know that's a word we don't use in everyday conversation a lot. But we're just saying, when we talk about consecration, it's our expression of unrestricted willingness for God to use us however He desires. When you think about that, you realize how over time, it's something that we continue to have to return to, isn't it? It's why some of you who grew up in the same kind of tradition as me had, a, had an experience that's similar to mine. And and why you feel driven to walk the aisle again and again to rededicate if you grew up in that tradition. Man, if you got a if you got a certificate for rededication the way you did for baptism, I think I could have papered my bedroom with, with rededication certificates, you know. Because I, I did it again and again. But the thing that drove that was as you grow in your in your life and understanding, you recognize more and more areas that it's like I never even was aware of, of that issue in my life. And so I've never specifically brought that to Christ and yielded that to Him. And so you feel the need again and again to consecrate yourself and to say, Lord, whatever you want to do with me and with this in my life, it's yours and I'm yours. Well, it's, 
a key part of the process, but it was a shock to discover that consecration is only the first step toward operating in the power of the Spirit. It is a key piece. I mean, here are some passages that were you know, vital in our theology growing up. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. That word Lord, it means master, king, ruler, the one in charge. So, man, I grew up in a tradition where we say yes to that. I want Jesus to be in control of everything. And by the way, until you can say that, don't expect to move forward a great deal. We must yield to him as Lord. Paul in, in Romans 12:1 said, So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to His service and to pleasing Him. This is a piece that you can't run past. Now, the interesting thing is, consecration, surrender, can happen in a matter of minutes, can't it? I mean, the truth of the matter is, when, when we hear, if you ever are in an environment where, boy, the power of the Spirit is just present. God is just there powerfully. And when the message of Christ and of the cross and what He's done is communicated in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not something that you've got to spend six years getting ready for. Instead of six years, I mean in six minutes. You can just be overcome by the greatness of God and the depravity of yourself. And in that moment, surrender and say, yes, God, I give you everything. And in a moment of time, we've done the first key piece. We have surrendered to Him. I think back to how I used to, to think about this and wrestle with this. Let's see how many of you can identify with this piece. Because for me, the Christian experience and the thought of surrendering fully to Christ as a believer was a little bit like living inside a house where all the doors and windows are closed. And it was, a, you know, it's a nice enough place to live. It's not a bad, bad place to be. But it's very much blocked in by walls and barriers. This is all that you've experienced so far is inside the house. But there's one door in that house that leads to the, the greatness of what's beyond, and it's labeled consecration, surrender. And in my experience, I, I just remember, while, yes, I would again and again have those moments where I would say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be in charge of everything, but at the same time, I would have periods where I would be so afraid of that thought. Because in my way of thinking, it was like, okay, I understand that beyond that door that is surrender to Jesus, there is glory. I mean, if I would fully surrender every part of my heart, my life, my plans to Jesus and finally pass through that door of surrender, man, Jesus is just waiting on the other side. And He'll be so real in my life. He'll talk with me as one friend talks to another. There's going to be power. There's going to be intimacy just on the other side of that door. That's pretty much how I thought about it. But at the same time, I was afraid of that door. Because I was always afraid of what Jesus would do with somebody who was willing to go through that door. Because I carried this sense of, you know, there aren't a lot of people probably who fully surrender themselves to God. And so if you're willing to pass through the door of surrender, there's no telling what Jesus would do to you. I mean, he only gets a few of them, so he's got to give them the really hard, nasty jobs, you know. If you're willing to surrender to him, oh, good heavens, there's no telling where he's going to send you to live. He's probably going to get you in the middle of dirty stuff, and you're bound to be poor. 
I mean, you can't surrender to Jesus and be anything but poor, right? Because if you surrender to Jesus, you're supposed to care about the poor, so you've got to give away everything that you've got, so you're going to live your life as a poor person. And I'm like, that doesn't sound fun. I don't want to have an airplane. <laughs> Spent all of my years as a childhood and a teen. It was like, I wasn't a greedy person, but there was one thing I knew. I wanted to own an airplane in this life. That hadn't happened, by the way. But I just had all these pictures of all the bad stuff that Jesus was going to do to me if I passed through that door. So I'd like say yes, yes to Jesus, but with fear and trembling. You want to know what the biggest bummer in that was? I'm just being honest. I passed through that door a bunch of times. I didn't find on the other side what I was expecting at all. I thought just on the other side of that door was glory. The glory of God, Jesus waiting there just almost in the flesh to be my friend, to just sit down with me in my quiet time and talk to me. And you know what I found on the other side of that door? I didn't find Jesus sitting there. I didn't find glory. I didn't find instant power. I didn't find all of the woo-woo I was looking for. What I found on the other side of that door is not what I was looking for. I just found a long path. And it wasn't a real smooth, easy path. It was just a path. And I was expecting so much more. What I discovered was a reality. And it was reality that lines up with the scriptures. What I discovered is the second truth that I've laid out for you here. And it was this. That following the gateway, the doorway of consecration or surrender is the long pathway of the discipline of the Holy Spirit. And nobody will shout and say, yes, and amen to that. That doesn't sound exciting or sexy or anything, does it? But I will tell you what really lies on the other side of that door marked surrender or consecration. It's not Jesus waiting in the flesh to go, all right, now you've arrived. What you will find is a long pathway that is the discipline of the Spirit of God. Hebrews chapter 12 is one of those passages that I always tried when I would be reading through Hebrews. I would always try and just read through quickly. He says this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. and Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as a discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? That is just not an exciting passage on the surface, is it? I mean, that's, I bet nobody has that one just like stuck on your refrigerator at home. Going, I just want to be reminded of that every day. And yet I want to tell you, this is one of the most important truths in all the Bible. This may not be a phrase that, that you're familiar with, but it's a concept that you are. There are many different means of grace in the Christian experience. When we talk about means of grace, these are just ways, very specific ways that we experience and receive the grace of God in our lives. And when we say the grace of God, we're talking about getting what we need in our, our Christian experience. And there are many different means of grace that we can define. You're experiencing one of them right now. Listening to biblical teaching, listening to a biblical sermon is a means of grace in the Christian experience. We've just entered into, in the first half of the service, another well-defined means of grace, and that is worship. 
Corporate worship is a means of grace where we something happens. We Something gets put back in the tank, doesn't it? We're here to give praise to God, and yet our tanks are getting filled up through this means of grace that's called worship. Reading the Bible is a means of grace. It, bring, it takes effort for you to read the Bible, but how many times have you read the Bible and yet something got poured into you as you poured yourself into the Scriptures? It is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. It takes effort for you to pray, and yet there are many times that when you're done praying, you walk away with something more in you than what you had when you came in, right? A bunch of different things that are means of grace. Christian fellowship is a means of grace. We're going to have a fellowship time this afternoon. Something gets poured into you when you do that. It's a means of, of, of you receiving God's grace. Communion is one of those means. All of these are, are every single one, are indispensable means of grace. You need them in your life as much as I do. But here's something that you may not have walked in the door realizing, is that there is one means of grace that is more necessary and more needed and more important than all of the others. And it is the discipline of the Holy Spirit. What on earth are we talking about? Well, this passage begins to give us a glimpse of what the discipline of the Holy Spirit looks like. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but whoever the writer is, he uses several different words here. If I'll just tell you, reading it in the Greek uh, is very similar to, to reading it in the English. That Thankfully, the same they don't just use the same word over and over where different words are used. He says, you may want to underline the different words. He says... Don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And there he uses this word that's going to appear again and again and again in the passage. That word discipline means child rearing. It means instruction and correction at times. But, but most generally, it just means all of the stuff that you do to teach and rear your children. So like when you hear discipline, and most of us think bad stuff, it's like, ooh, discipline, that, that was when I got spanked. That was when I got put on restrictions. No, this word discipline is just think the totality of what a loving parent does to train and rear and care for their children. That's the word that he's using there. Don't, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you. Now, that's a different word. That, that's a word for... You know, having to come down and go, uh-uh, no, 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 not in this house. Every parent in the room, you have rebuked your children. We, we've all done the, the thing of loving child rearing, but then part of that deal is the rebuke. To say, oh no, 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 you come back here. You don't leave a room like that. You don't slam a door. That's rebuke, right? You slam that door one more time, I'll give you a reason to never do it again. That is rebuke. God rebukes. He says, because of the Lord's discipline, the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. There's the third word. That word punish means literally to scourge. <laughs> that is to cause pain by swinging something. My mom knew how to scourge very well. <laughs> she had a paddle and she had an arm, and she applied it as needed, and I needed it quite often. And I got it. It is a picture of how... There are different parts to, to the Lord's discipline in our lives. Sometimes it's a word of correction. No, mm -mm, that is not going to fly in this house. Our family doesn't do that. That doesn't fit with who you are. So you go back and make that right. You know, the rebuke. And sometimes a rebuke is not enough, is it? Sometimes a little trip to the woodshed is necessary. 
I know we're modern people. We don't do that anymore. We need to. The writer of Hebrews knows that we need to because he said, I want you to know the, the Lord himself will take you to the woodshed. And hadn't we all been there? And bear the marks to prove it. Oh my goodness. I wish that I would learn to not do the stupid stuff that deserves a trip to the woodshed. I mean, I'm so glad that in our, our, our human experience that we get to a point that we don't get to go to the woodshed anymore. That, you know, parents just go, all right, you're too old for that. We'll have to find other ways to discipline you. And it's like, yes, thank you. Because, man, you know, I'd hear people say, oh, the worst punishment that my parent could give me was when they would say this or when they would do that. But, you know, it was never a spank. And I'm like, well, you didn't get spanked like we got spanked. Because <laughs> the worst, worst punishment we got was, was when we got worn out. I was glad when that day ended. Isn't it a shame you never fully outgrow that in the Christian experience, you know? God still has all of those options available to him. But the one that the writer of Hebrews goes back to again and again is not the woodshed. It's not the scourging. It's not the rebuke. It is that, that word for rearing, for training. The, the total picture of being trained by the Holy Spirit to be the person that he wants you to be. Think about the different ways that your parents do that. Because I want us to make sure we understand when we say discipline. The discipline of the Lord, he says, is often manifest as, he says, endure hardship as discipline. This is really a profound thought. Everybody here experiences hardship. Think about your own life in the last year. What have been some of the biggest hardships that you've been through? They come a bunch of different ways, but they come to all of us. I mean, for some people, it's like it's a no-brainer. You go, oh, man, the biggest hardship I've been through has been because of what's happened with one of my kids and what they're doing and the choices they're making. And that has been a source of so much pain and hardship. And others would go, oh, it's been all about my marriage and all of the difficulty that we've had there. And some would say, oh, the biggest hardships because I've made right choices and now they've been found out and it's, it's caused all kinds of problems at work or at home. And for some, the biggest hardship has been a loss this year. For some, it's been a physical ailment or illness for you or somebody that you care about. Some of, some of us, the biggest hardship has been a separation or being, you know, distance put between you and somebody that you care about. I mean, we could just go on and on. A lot of different hardships in life. But here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the universal thing among them. He says, when you go through hardship, the really, really hard stuff, you endure that. He didn't pretend you're going to enjoy it. He says, endure it as the Lord's discipline. Now, if you tuned out, I need you to tune back in because you cannot miss this. He is not saying that whatever bad, whatever painful stuff has happened in your life, that God caused it. What he is saying is that the discipline of the Holy Spirit, that the training of God takes the whole of your experiences, including the worst, most miserable, unexplainable, painful stuff. And he still uses it in your life as a training ground for making you what he wants you to be and actually for sowing the very best stuff into your life through the most painful experiences. Think about it in terms of how your parents trained you. Now I realize that there are going to be a few people that are just like, I had screwy parents and they were cruel and, and 
whatever. If that was your experience, I'm, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to belittle that, but that's not who we're talking about. If you came up in a healthy home with parents who loved you and did what parents are supposed to do, think about how they trained you through most of, most of the experiences of life. They didn't cause most of what you experienced, did they? When you were going through middle school and you were having a miserable time because your friends mistreated you or they rejected you because the girls hated you, the boys didn't like you, because whatever it was, your parents didn't cause that, did they? But what did they do? They sought to train you how to cope with that and how to get through it, how to survive that. When you were suffering pain and hardship when you were growing up, your parents didn't cause most of the hardships, did they? They just stepped in in a way to try and help you survive that, to learn from it, to grow through it. I think back to my experience when I was growing up. I hated middle school. I liked school in general, but I hated middle school. Everybody changed. People started acting like jerks, and it didn't make sense. And, man, I can remember... One specific situation where suddenly arriving at middle school and now instead of just like being with your grade, like you go to, to PE with you know, three or four different grades mixed in together and you're the little kids and puberty's made some others at PE a lot bigger than you. And I can remember there were some really rotten, cruel guys a few years older than me who for whatever reason chose, it, it was the one time in my life I really remember just being like picked on. I, I wasn't somebody that was usually the victim of that. I remember getting really wailed on and going home and it's like what do I do this is terrible and you know the thing that strikes me so much about how my parents dealt with that I don't remember specifically what they said back but I do remember this that they would not step in and fix it for me that the instruction and the wisdom that they gave was to empower me to daily walk back into that experience and learn how to relate, how to work through it, how to deal with it. Not to get my brains beaten out every day, but to go in and cope with it, but not to be helicopter parents who rescued me from that situation. They trained me how to deal with adversity and difficult people, not how to always escape them. Now I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a moment here and say... This may be the biggest mistake that parents today are making. Somehow my generation lost that. And we feel the need to protect and insulate our children's lives and to rescue them so that they never have to face difficulty. And that is not how God parents. And that is not how God would have us to parent. God allows us to endure hardship, according to Hebrews... And it's a form of Holy Spirit discipline. It's the training ground for God to do a profound work in our lives. And oh, by the way, we as parents are called to do the same thing. Moms and dads, please don't rescue your kids every time they run into something difficult. Every time they get hurt, don't just suddenly go, well, you can't do that anymore. You might get hurt again. I, I was, man, I was dangerous growing up. I... I did more stupid things to myself, set myself on fire, blew myself up, broke bones. I, I mean, I did. Like In the day and age in which we live, DHR would probably have taken me away from my parents because of the things I just did to myself. I was just 
danger prone. And like in sports, I would break bones. I broke an arm playing football. I broke an ankle playing basketball. And the cool thing about my parents is they never tried to put me in a bubble as a result of it. They, they never, you know, I mean, I did. I literally set my, set my hand on fire. I, I mean, just did, I did bad things to myself, not intentionally. I was just a dangerous kid. But my mom and dad did not go, oh my goodness, you can't ever play sports again. You might get hurt again. Nope. They would patch you up and they would allow you to step back into the game. And what I want you to understand about how God disciplines us is that it is not that God is the author and cause of our pain. But in the midst of all of that, God is seeking to use our most painful and difficult experiences to really grow us up and to teach us some critically important things. And we're about to get down to some of the most important things that God is going to teach us in the midst of our pain. Now, I just I want to make a couple of statements before I move on about this thing of this pathway of, of the discipline of the Holy Spirit. First is to just understand consecration never works as a substitute for, for God's discipline. Don't miss that. You, you can walk the aisle. You can come to the altar in your personal prayer time. You can say, oh, Jesus, I surrender everything to you today. I just want to, I just want to be there. I want to have arrived with you. Consecration never takes the place of this long pathway of the Lord's discipline. Also, understand, you should not think it strange if many difficult things plague you after you fully commit yourself to God. You ever notice how frequently that happens? Like when you have sort of a mountaintop spiritual experience and, oh Jesus, now I'm fully yours. And it's just like, bam, everything suddenly hits in your life. Shouldn't it be the reverse of that? Shouldn't it be, Jesus, I love you. I want to live for you. And so it's like, spiritual bubble around you. Make sure nothing ever happens to Terry. He loves Jesus. Now, so we never let anything happen to Terry. Wrong-o. It's not that way at all. It's the reverse of that. Terry says, Jesus, I love you. I want to fully live for you. And he goes, all right. Now we actually have got you on the path of discipline. Now we're going to, some things that you've been protected from, we're going to allow some of those things start coming in your life. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. And you'll never grow up if you don't have some hard, painful things happen in your life. Don't, not only should you not be surprised, you should be going, yeah, this is normal. This is God growing me up as stuff that comes everybody's way, comes my way. Can I just pause and say the obvious? I'm not trying to pick on anybody here. I, for some of us, it's just kind of like, okay, whatever, another, another Bible teaching this morning. But I, listen, for some people, today's message is striking the sorest nerve in your heart. Because some really bad stuff has happened in your life. Because you are right now walking through some really, really painful stuff. And you've wanted to have a, a face-to-face with Jesus. And it wasn't for a, a cozy, holy moment. It was to say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? How could a loving God let this happen? How many times have I asked you for some help and for some relief? And it ain't coming. What are you doing? Are you paying attention? Some of you feel that deeply right now. And I'm not at all wanting to trivialize your experience because at some level, most all of us have been there at some point. Some of us at multiple points. But let me say the obvious. You can love Jesus. You can hate Jesus. 
You can be a nominal Christian. You can be anything in between. And can I just tell you this? Regardless of where you are, everybody that you love is going to die. Everybody that you love is going to get sick. And you're going to get sick. And you're going to die. Loving Jesus and being surrendered to Jesus does not create some bubble that makes the people that you love suddenly immune to pain and suffering. Or that makes you immune to pain and suffering. Your turn's coming and my turn is coming. Now there's an order to things where we think people ought to live to a certain age and ought to enjoy certain health for a certain period of time. And when that doesn't happen, we feel like there's been injustice in that. And I don't have the answers for all that. I just don't. But the thing that we have to get is this. Bad stuff's going to happen to everybody. Loving Jesus is not supposed to make you immune to that. And somehow, the idiots, most of whom are prospering by preaching this crap on TV, have led us to believe that if you love Jesus enough, you get the spiritual bubble. You live with with wealth and health and all of this blessing and prosperity that your marriage won't be troubled and, and your physical health won't be affected in any negative ways. And the truth of the matter is, everybody gets sick. Everybody experiences loss. Everybody has financial setbacks. And loving Jesus is not going to be the cure-all for that. And the truth of the matter is, it's not that God's going, Oh, now that you surrender to Jesus, I'm going to make you sick. Now that you love me, I'm going to kill everybody that you love. No, it doesn't work that way. But at least walk in with the understanding that the foolishness that we're hearing on TV all the time about... Oh, love Jesus, and you're going to get your best life right now. You're going to get everything that you wanted now. It doesn't work that way. And the last thing I'll say at that point is, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that discipline is a clear sign of God's love and involvement, not the reverse. Because don't you know that when we're going through the worst stuff, we're prone to sort of go, I don't think Jesus is paying attention. I've been praying, I've been asking for help, I've been asking for some kind of word, and I'm not getting what I'm asking for. He must not care. And the writer of Hebrews says the exact opposite. When you're experiencing the discipline of the Holy Spirit, it's clear evidence of the fact you're a son. You're a daughter. And God lovingly disciplines, trains every, every one of his kids that are legitimate. The third thing that I'll say is this. That God's discipline is designed to bring about our brokenness and our total reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, beginning in verse 5, says this. Those who live as their human nature tells them to. Now, stop and focus on that phrase for just a moment with me. What does it mean to live as your human nature tells you to? It means that you live by common sense. It means you live by what you instinctively feel and are able to do and figure out. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? I mean, I can't begin to tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, God gave us common sense for a reason and we're supposed to use it. We're supposed to operate by common sense. It's really interesting how that doesn't fit with the teachings of the New Testament. Those who live as their human nature tells them to, they have their minds controlled By what human nature wants. And those who live as the Spirit tells them to, they have their minds controlled by what the Spirit wants. 
To be controlled by human nature results in death. To be controlled by the Spirit results in life and peace. Boy, what a wonderful promise. Isn't that great? Wouldn't you love for those two things to define you? Life and peace. To live by what the Holy Spirit says ministers that. And so people become the enemies of God when they're controlled by their human nature. Those who obey their nature, their human nature, cannot please God. When you think about the discipline of the Holy Spirit, I don't know what comes to mind for you, but I can tell you for almost my entire experience what's come to mind for me. I've been bad somewhere. I was naughty somehow. And because I've been bad, God needs to come take me to the woodshed and make me suffer pain because of that so I won't be bad anymore, right? Isn't that how we think about discipline? Oh, I lost my temper and I I said something I shouldn't have or I used words that I shouldn't have. I mean, we we all know Christianity is supposed to be defined by those simple things, isn't it? Be a good Christian. Don't drink, drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't chew, and definitely don't run with girls who do, that kind of stuff. Live your life that way. So if if you break the rules on the list... You've been bad and you get the discipline of the Lord. But here's the really striking thing that I see in Romans. This is such a huge truth that it's taken me so long to ever get my head around. The vast majority of the discipline of God in our lives has little or nothing to do with bad behavior as we think of bad behavior. It has everything to do with us being broken. Broken from operating in our own strengths. Broken from just living by our own wits and our own gifts and what we can figure out. Broken from living life just based on common sense rather than following the leadership of the Spirit of God in our lives. Please let that sink in. I mean, if you didn't hear anything else that I said today, please let that one truth sink in. The majority of the disciplining work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life is not designed to get you to never cuss again. It is not designed to punish you for ever having one too many drinks. The majority of the disciplining work of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine is to bring us to a point of brokenness so that we no longer rely on ourselves. Our abilities, our strengths, our insight, our ability to figure this out. And this becomes, for many of us, the biggest hurdle in life. You remember last week we talked about that basic truth, that this treasure of the Spirit, the power, the presence, the insight and wisdom of God, we possess all of that, but it's as though it's in a clay pot. It's hidden in a clay pot, and it cannot be revealed Until enough pressure and stuff is brought to bear on that pot to bring it to a place of brokenness. And out of that brokenness, God's power, His intimacy, His presence, His wisdom is revealed. God has been bringing things to bear or allowing things to be brought to bear in your life and in mine to do one thing above everything else. And that is to bring us to the end of our rope. To bring about our brokenness. Does he care what comes out of our mouths? Sure. 
Does he care about our behavior? He does. But quite honestly, the biggest obstacle in your life is not your language. It's not, you know, whatever the big thing is that you think is the one thing that God cares about. For most of us, the biggest thing is that we would be broken, that we would get to a point that we don't live by our human nature just in our own wits. That we would be brought to a point that we can't trust ourselves for anything. And so we have to depend on God for everything. And can I tell you how big a deal this is to God? This is an unchangeable law that applies to every person in this room. God will continue to allow in your life pain, difficulty, hardship, challenging circumstances again and again and again and again until you finally give up on doing it yourself. Fixing it yourself, solving it yourself, and you get to a point that you have no confidence in yourself. And in desperation, you cry out to God again and again and again and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. Jesus, you're my only hope. I I don't even know how to get through today unless you lead me. I don't have the strength to deal with this today unless you supply it. And when you get to a place of total brokenness and total dependence, guess what you'll find? Jesus waiting there. The power of Christ. The intimacy and the presence of Christ. The wisdom of God. That's when it comes. The final thing I'll say is this. That brokenness is always the prerequisite to God's life and power being freely expressed through us. Paul said this about his ministry. Now hear me. I'm about to wrap this up. But I want you to hear what Paul is saying. Remember who Paul is? He's been one of the biggest world shapers in all of human history. He is so bright. He is so gifted. But I want you to hear him describe how he ministered. He said, when I came to you, my friends, to preach God's secret truth, I did not use big words and great learning, though he possessed those. So when I came to you, I was weak and trembled all over with fear. And my teaching and message were not delivered with skillful words of human wisdom but with the convincing proof of the power of God's Spirit. Your faith, then, does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You know what he just said? He said in a short form, you know, I could have come to you and tried to impress you with all of my knowledge and all of my vocabulary, and you didn't see any of that. All you saw was genuine weakness. What you saw was brokenness. It's interesting, there's this huge portion of Paul's Christian experience that the scriptures are silent on. After he came to Christ and had these initial experiences, there are a bunch of years where Paul's just in the desert. He's just with God. You know what's happening? God's taking an extremely strong, smart, gifted man, and he is breaking him. He is breaking him of all self-confidence, of self-love. And he is bringing him to a point that a man who could have always before, he was a religious man. And with confidence, he could speak to the crowds and he could take charge. And he is tearing him down to the point that for him to stand in front of a crowd, he now trembles. Because he realizes he has nothing to give them apart from the Spirit of God showing up and speaking through him. He said, you weren't impressed with me. Because there was nothing impressive about me. By the time I spoke to you, my knees were knocking and my voice was trembling. I was truly in fear as I spoke to you. 
at a place of having no confidence in myself. But here's what you experienced. You didn't experience a powerful Paul. You experienced a weak Paul and a powerful God. So the faith that you got out of that is not a faith in me. It is a true faith in God because you experienced his power. The power of God is only manifest in a broken life. The power of God is only manifest in a broken life that has got to sink in. It's what Jesus is talking about in John 15. I started out by talking about how God impacted my life going to the vineyard. You want to know what the theme passage for the vineyard was? Doesn't take a genius to figure this one out. John 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. And he says, my father is the gardener. And the gardener comes in and he lops off every little branch that's not bearing fruit. He's careful to prune every life. It's a picture of discipline. It's a picture of training. And he goes on to say this passage that I heard again and again as a teen and it just didn't, wouldn't click for me. Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. A branch cannot produce fruit by itself but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you cannot produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. But without me, you can't do anything. I want to tell you when Jesus spoke those words, he might as well have said, Mark Price, you can't do anything. Mark Price, wake up, hear my voice. Apart from me, you can't do anything. I haven't been able to escape this passage for the past 30 years. It has haunted me. Because you see, I'm just wired to think I can. I'm a pretty smart guy. I get along well with people. I've got leadership gifts. I've got strengths. I am convinced that I can do things. And the Spirit of God whispers again and again, Mark, apart from me, you can't do anything. You want to know what frightens me to my core? I can preach a pretty good sermon without Jesus. I can lead a church without Jesus. I can counsel people pretty decently without Jesus. And you may say, well, that's not what the scripture says. That's the problem. I could sit down one-on-one with you and in my own strengths... I could walk through a counseling session with you and you walk away, probably feel like you had been helped some. And do it on my own. I assure you I can deliver a sermon that you'll walk away and feel like you learned something and do it on my own. I know because I've done it. That frightens me to my core. Because I could spend years of my life in ministry, and I'm not so sure that at times I didn't spend long periods of time operating just in what I could do. And all the while, the discipline of the Holy Spirit at work in my life, working to break me, to bring me to a point of realizing, when will you get the message? Apart from me, you can't do anything. Oh, sure. 
Can you give somebody a pep talk in counseling and leave them feeling better about themselves? Yes, you can. But guess what? You didn't affect any life change. You didn't bring any real help to bear because you didn't give any of me away in that moment. Can you preach a sermon that gives new information and that tickles people's ears and they leave going, hey, that was pretty good. And you do that on your own? Sure you can. But guess what? Nobody's life was changed when you did that. Because apart from me, you can't do anything. Here's the thing that I didn't get when over and over and over I recommitted my life to Jesus. Is that the act of consecration alone, apart from the discipline of the Holy Spirit, is me being the self-confident, independent, self-sufficient person that I was, hard-headed, strong-willed person that I was, walking in and saying, Yes, Jesus, I give my all to you. I hope I've arrived now. Guess what I am after that moment? I am now a committed, independent, hard-headed, self-sufficient, self-loving, self-serving person. That's what I am. An hour later, having heard a wonderful biblical message, and with everything that I could saying yes to Jesus, now I'm a consecrated, independent, self-serving person. And there's only one thing that will change that, and that is the long pathway of the discipline of the Holy Spirit. I'm hard-headed enough that I've had to go through some of the really rotten things that life could ever offer to even get me to a point of beginning to finally realize I don't have anything to offer that's going to be of any value to anybody else apart from Jesus. It's a wonderful and terrible thing all rolled together to come to the realization I have nothing for you apart from Jesus. And out of that weakness to realize, wow, something healthy and life-giving is happening in me. You see, when we get to a point of brokenness, some really amazing things come as a result. We begin to experience an intimacy with God that doesn't just happen in a quiet time. It's with us. He is with us. We begin to experience power that we had not walked in before. We begin to experience a meekness that we don't generate and that's not pretend. It's rooted in recognizing our own desperate weakness and need for God. You see, the heart of the matter is really simple. Some of the very moments in life when we have felt like God was furthest from us or being least kind to us because the most painful things came our way, God was looking at that and saying, I hurt with you because it hurts as only a parent can feel. I feel your pain so deeply. I promise you I won't waste this. I promise you I won't dare let you go through this without bringing you so much grace and help and progress through this. It doesn't take away the pain. But it surely does redefine it when you recognize God gives great meaning in our pain. Endure hardship as discipline. For the Lord disciplines every son He loves. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are so patient. You're so much more committed to us than we are to you. Thank you that you continue to pursue us. Thank you that you continue to grow us up. 
Thank you that in our moments of worst pain, that you have been so faithful to move us forward. We confess that there have been times when we've gotten angry at you and frustrated at you, when in fact you have been so lovingly at work in our lives. Would you continue and finish what you've started in us? It it may be that there are some listening online, some in the room today, that you really do.